If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark 10, 1 through 12, and it's on page 845 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you're using those. Mark 10, 1 through 12, and the title of this sermon is Jesus and Marriage. Um, The following is taken from R.C. Sproul on marriage and divorce, and he says this. He says, in the mid-20th century, the Harvard sociologist, Patrim Sorokin, wrote a book in which he sounded an alarm about the impending disintegration of American culture and civilization. The central concern of Sorokin's book was the radical proliferation of divorce and the breakup of the American home between 1910 and 1948. He pointed out that in 1910, 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce, but that number rose to 25% in 1948. Sorokin, speaking as a historian of culture, said that no civilization can long survive when one-fourth of its marriage units are disintegrating. 25% by 1948. By the time Sproul was writing here, the number had grown not to 25%, but to 50. Uh, While hard to pin down, uh, thankfully today that number has gone down to 39%. But... Most sociologists say that that's largely due to people simply foregoing marriage altogether. Simply put, divorce is a major issue in our current culture. Unfortunately, it's nothing new. It was an issue in Jesus' day, and as we'll find out, even in Moses' before him. Uh, But before... Diving into our text, I want to preface this sermon with a couple of brief comments. Uh, Number one, this text um, is what's hard and what's great about expositional preaching through books of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, to be completely transparent, if I were just selecting topics to preach on each week, I'm fairly confident that I wouldn't be preaching on this topic today. Uh, It's hard. Some will even find it offensive. But if I neglected to preach on this topic, I wouldn't be a faithful pastor. Uh, My calling is to preach the whole counsel of God's word to you, even the hard stuff. And by God's grace, Expositional preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, forces me to do that. Um, But here's the beauty. Uh, I didn't pick this text today. Uh, The elders didn't pick this text for today. It's simply the next text in the book of Mark. God has ordained for this text to be preached at this church on this day. So if you're here today, I believe that it's by God's design. Um, So I encourage you to take a moment and to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning through this text. The second thing I want to say is that this text is completely out of step with what the world will tell you. 
David Wells once said that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Uh, This is one of those teachings of Jesus that will absolutely look strange to the world that has made sin look normal. Uh, My friend Matt Felton, my former boss in Oklahoma, uh, he said this is one of those passages that you could walk into any given room in our country, including a room full of Christians, and simply read the passage out loud. The words of Jesus by themselves without giving any comment and offend half the room or more. Maybe he's in the room spiraling into a, well, that can't possibly mean that, can it? But the question here is this, and this is a test of discipleship. What do you do when Jesus disagrees with you? If he never disagrees with you, you must be perfect. And we should be following you instead of Jesus. Or you're not reading his words. I say that uh, to say up front that it's possible this morning that Jesus disagrees with some of us on this topic. If that's you, I humbly plead with you to hang with me, to repent where needed, changing your ways and beliefs to match Jesus and not the other way around. Third, I know that this will be a hard subject for some of you in this room who have gone through a divorce or are in a tough marriage currently. I'm not aloof to that this morning. And Jesus isn't either. either. And I want you to know up front that there's grace for you. So please, please, don't tune Jesus out here. Hang with me for a little bit. With that in mind, let's give our attention to God's word. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he, meaning Jesus, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Our four points for today's sermon 
are these. Number one, the gospel. Number two, Moses. Number three, marriage. And number four, divorce. So point one, the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Even before looking at specific verses in this text, I want to remind us of a couple of bedrock truths. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created human beings to image him, to enjoy him, to have relationship with him, with each other. We'll come back to this a little bit later. But it all went horribly wrong after that, didn't it? Satan, that ancient serpent in chapter 3 of Genesis, slithered up to Adam and Eve, whispering lies, sowing division between the newlyweds and God. God was for Adam and Eve. He set up everything for flourishing. He was generous to them. But they chose not to trust his word. They listened to Satan instead and ate from the one tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to. They sinned and sin entered the world through them. For the first time, the world was broken. Why am I sharing all of this? This is Genesis. I thought we were in Mark. Well, because of this moment in the garden, Genesis 3, we have divorce in Mark 10. Divorce is a result of the fall. If there were no sin in the world, we'd have no divorce. We'd all have happy and holy, healthy marriages. But the fall was and is today very real. Sin entered the world. Brokenness permeates everything that we see. And divorce is one of many fruits of that. But here's the good news. Jesus came because of the fall. The gospel exists because of sin. Jesus came to this earth and lived perfectly in every way that Adam didn't there in the garden. He always listened and obeyed God, never Satan. He then went to the cross and died in place of those who would repent and believe in him as their only hope of salvation. He made full atonement for sin, even divorce. He absorbed the full amount of God's wrath that each and every one of us deserved. He's fixing brokenness. If you're here this morning and you've been divorced unbiblically, the gospel is good news for you. I want you to know that this morning before we go any further. Even if you haven't been divorced, but your marriage is broken in some way. That's all of us, by the way. 
the gospel is good news for you this morning, too. Jesus died for sins that we commit against our spouses. From the beginning, I want each of us to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us where we need convicting from his word. To be willing to repent where we need to. And then to embrace the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Knowing that he paid for our sin. And that he stands graciously ready to forgive us. This text will expose our need for the gospel. Point two, Moses. So let's dive back into our text in Mark. Look with me at verses one through five. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This is an absolute trap. (laughs) In verse 2, we see this question that isn't really a question, is it? This kind of thing happens all the time today. It's a gotcha question that it isn't looking for an honest answer. It's not looking for information. It's looking for blood. The text tells us that these men came up to test Jesus. Mark uses this verb test four different times. Three of them describe the Pharisees, but most importantly, the first time he uses this word It's to refer to Satan himself. Do you remember that? All the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 13. It says, And he, meaning Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Tempted is the same word translated tested in our text today. You're meant to read that and think, hmm, I've seen this word, I've heard this word before. And it's satanic. It's not honest. It's a trap. And it's a trap in potentially two different ways. Number one, notice the region that Jesus is in. It says Judea beyond the Jordan. This is the region of John the Baptist. Where did we last see John the Baptist? Being beheaded, right? Why? Because he spoke out against Herod. For what? For marrying Herodias, who had divorced her husband. John the Baptist, in this region, called that sin. Was beheaded for it. Now, the Pharisees are asking this question of Jesus in the same region. Maybe hoping to get him beheaded too. So, part of the trap is geographic. But second, it's a theological trap. During this time, Jesus' time, as today, there were both conservative 
and liberal theological positions. In Judaism, specifically on the issue of divorce, there were two different schools. To understand these schools, we need to go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, says this. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The crux of the matter was, what does found some indecency in her mean? In verse 1. It can't mean adultery here, because adultery meant death by stoning. That's clearly taught in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20. So it can't mean adultery. So in Jesus's time, there were two schools of thought kind of debating that question. What does some indecency in her mean? One was the school of Hillel. One, the school of Shammai. Shammai was the more conservative one, and he took this to mean that this summon decency meant that it was discovered that this woman had had premarital sex and hid it before covenanting in marriage. That was the indecency, they said. See, in that time, there were long engagement periods where the man and the woman were committed to one another formally in betrothal, but they weren't yet husband and wife. Think about Joseph and Mary, the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary are betrothed, and he finds out that Mary's pregnant, and Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that he resolved to divorce her quietly. In our books, we're like, oh, they're not even married yet. How can they be divorced? That's what Shammai saw. This is what was happening. Hillel, on the other hand, was the more liberal of the two, and he taught that indecency, and I'm not making this up, indecency can mean something as petty as you don't like her cooking. <laughs> that, that's what he taught. We're not going to dive deep into that debate right now. <laughs> but that's the debate that's going on in Jesus' day between these two schools of Hillel and Shammai. The Pharisees were allowing divorce for pretty much any reason whatsoever. And they're using Deuteronomy 24 as their proof text. They're saying, see Jesus, Moses allows it. What about you? So how does Jesus respond? Verse 5. He says, this isn't on Moses. It's on you. It's on human hardness of heart. In fact, the law in Deuteronomy 24 was actually meant to hold marriage in high regard. 
Uh, Understand this. In those days, men generally had a very low view of women. They believed that you could just get rid of your wife for any reason whatsoever. Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24 was given actually to protect women. It was given because of sin. It was there to control a situation that had become abhorrent. Here are the three things that that law actually provided. Number one, it limited divorce to certain causes. There had to be a moral defect discovered, and the man had to establish it with witnesses, according to Jewish law. Second, the man had to give the woman a certificate of divorce. This protected her against accusations of adultery, which could lead to her being stoned to death. If a man were divorcing his wife, it went through a process, and it was serious. Third, the man, after giving her a certificate of divorce, was not allowed to remarry her. Marriage isn't something that you can walk in and out of. The bill of divorce is a permanent decision. Deuteronomy 24 is teaching that you shouldn't take it lightly. So you can see that the law of Moses was actually limiting divorce and teaching the seriousness of marriage. It was there to protect women who were sinfully being kicked out into the world with no place to go was there to protect women, which is what the men should have been doing. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are using the text to broaden divorce, not limit it. One of my friends compares Deuteronomy 24 to a runaway truck ramp. Anyone ever seen those? Runaway truck ramps. When you're, you're driving up in the mountains, every couple of miles... You see these, these steep terrains. It's an off-ramp that goes off the main road up at a steep angle. They were designed for the terrible event that a semi-truck's brakes went out. They're designed for if something awful happens. You don't go up to the mountains and just drive up these runaway truck ramps for fun. It's not what they're there for. They're not there for recreation or for trucks that are running the way they're intended. They're not the norm. That's what the Pharisees had done with divorce. They took something that was there as a safety valve and made it the norm. And real quick, do you see how Jesus is handling this? This is amazing. They they come up to trap him. They ask him his opinion on what's lawful. How does he respond? Verse 3. He responds with a question. Sometimes it's better to answer a question with a question. Jesus actually does this often. But in that question, what's he doing? He's pointing them to the scriptures. Even though it's Jesus, he's rooting what he's saying in the authority of God's word. This isn't any normal book. Jesus believes that it has authority. 
So the Pharisees come to trap Jesus. They want to talk about divorce. But Jesus wants to talk about marriage. So point three, marriage. Look with me at verses six through nine. Derek Thomas gives this illustration here about airplane safety. (laughs) If you've ever flown on an airplane before, what's the regular routine as they begin taxiing? They walk you through all of the exit strategies, right? If you're sitting in an exit row, are you willing to open the door? Are you willing to open the door? Here's the deal. If we're crashing and I need the exit strategy, we're done. (laughs) This isn't the intention of the plane. The the Pharisees are coming to Jesus wanting to start with the exit strategy. But Jesus says, no, we're not going to start with the exit strategy. I'm going to start with the original intention. You want to talk about divorce, I'm going to talk about Marriage. Let's start in Genesis 1. (laughs) But look at verse 6. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He quotes Genesis 1.27 that we read earlier, showing that the proper context for marriage is a male and a female. That's our starting point. Male and female created in God's image. One commentator here notes that just as God is inseparably one being, so he intended for a male and a female in marriage to become one being who would not be divided. Male and female created in God's image. Jesus is laying out foundational truths for marriage. Then, in verses 7 and 8, he quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, that we also read earlier. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Do you see that? From the beginning, the initial design for marriage was that two become one flesh. This is key. When the two unite, they become one. Physically, emotionally, body, soul, spirit. The two become one. Andy Stanley says this so well. It's really concise. He says, you can't un-one what God has made one. You can't Unone what God has made one. Wow. That sounds so permanent. Yeah. That's Jesus' point. Yeah, but my husband's a jerk. And my parents think that she's... And my friends are saying... And the, the attorneys found out a way to do it. And you can't unone... What God has made one. They're trying to ask if divorce is permissible. And Jesus is saying, I'm not even sure if it's possible. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, 
Let not man separate. You can't unone what God has made one. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are trying to unone one. This was not God's intention for marriage. God's design for marriage was a man and a woman permanently together in unity, one flesh. Don't look for the exit strategy. Look at God's design. Strive after that. Stop trying to see how much you can get away with under the letter of the law and remember the garden, Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus came to restore. His gospel takes our brokenness and makes it new. His gospel can change our broken marriages and restore them to his original intent. Even closer, his gospel can change our sinful hearts where divorce originates. This one flesh union of a man and a woman forever isn't restrictive, brothers and sisters. It's an absolute gift of God. It's freeing. (laughs) There's no one else in the world who I can be more myself with than my wife, Shannon. Why? Because we've covenanted together for life, warts and all. Even when I sin against her, I'm safe. She doesn't run. I repent and she forgives. It's the most free and safe relationship I have. It's beautiful. It's not perfect at all. But we are committed to pursuing God's perfect design for us. That's Jesus' point. And this leads the disciples to ask more questions back in the house. Honest questions this time, unlike the Pharisees who were trying to trap him. Point four, divorce. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. It says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wait, what? Am I reading that correctly? Um, A man divorces his wife, someone marries her, and that's adultery? Why? Because in God's eyes, she's still married. You can't unone what God has made one. <laughs> a piece of paper from a judge doesn't undo what God has done in making the two one. Do you think that God takes marriage seriously? Yes, he does. Jesus takes marriage seriously because it displays God's character and the gospel. When our spouse sins against us, we forgive because that's what God through Christ has done for us. We love unconditionally. 
Because that's the kind of love that God has for us. We're long-suffering and patient with one another. Because that's what God is like. Think about the prophet Hosea. I encourage you to go read the whole book of Hosea sometime. It's crazy. It's awesome. God tells Hosea to go marry Gomer, who's repetitively unfaithful to him. Then God tells Hosea to continue to be faithful to her. Why? To display God's character, to display what God is like. This is why God takes marriage so seriously. Because it either proclaims or lies about who he is. We're on this earth as image bearers. Yes, as individuals. But also as married couples. To display who God is. And what he's done. That's the message of Ephesians 5 on marriage. God holds marriage high. He's clear on divorce. Okay, Drew, but are there any exceptions? Yes. I believe that what Jesus is speaking to in this text particularly, in Mark 10, is someone who's unbiblically divorced. In other words, to be unbiblically divorced and to remarry is adultery. But in other places in Scripture, there are grounds for biblical divorce. There are exceptions. I understand there to be two. And a third reason that may allow for remarriage biblically. In other words, I believe that divorce may be permissible in these two cases, and remarriage in three. Number one, adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, talking about this exact issue, Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus can say this because in the case of adultery, a Christian can proceed as though his or her spouse were dead. Remember, the Old Testament penalty for adultery was death. Jesus makes an exception for adultery. Second, desertion of an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Paul says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. God has called you peace. So adultery or desertion of an unbelieving spouse. A third thing, a pre-conversion divorce. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Kent Hughes notes that in this text, the word new, kainos, means new in quality. 
The same word is used of the new man in Ephesians 2.15. It says that the new self in Ephesians 4.24. Not only are believers really new, Paul says that the old has gone. Those who come to Christ are completely forgiven. Among the old things that have passed away are all sins, including divorce prior to salvation. If it is otherwise, he says, then divorce is the only sin for which Christ did not atone. So there are two instances where divorce is permissible, but not required, biblically. Permissible, but not required. But, again, this isn't God's plan. God makes it clear in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, that he hates divorce. If you're here and you've been divorced, maybe you're wondering as you hear all of this, God hates divorce? Does he hate me? No. In fact, in John chapter 8, there's this woman who's actually caught in adultery. Do you remember that? What does Jesus do? He protects her. He runs off the accusers. And he forgives her. He doesn't tell her that what she did wasn't sin. He doesn't do that at all. But he says, go and sin no more. On this text... Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, On the basis of the gospel, and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God, or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I assure you of pardon. I hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. That's what Jesus said to this woman in John 8 who was caught in adultery. Repent of the sin of unbiblical divorce. Jesus doesn't condemn you. That's why he went to the cross for you. Divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. Earlier in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus told us, he said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Isn't that good news? Divorce isn't a stain that you have to carry around with you, making you a substandard Christian. It's a sin, just like all others, that Jesus died for. Church, we can't be less gracious than God on this. God forgives and gives grace. We should too. In closing, if you're not married, I can't say this loud enough. If you're not married, take marriage seriously. 
find a spouse who loves and honors Jesus. Commit to God's design for marriage. One man, one woman for life. Don't go in with an exit strategy in your back pocket. Don't get married flippantly. Look to honor God from the beginning. If you are married, stay committed to God's plan for your marriage. Be faithful. Love your spouse. Forgive them. Bear with them. Serve them. Sacrifice for them. Display the gospel in your marriage. If you're, mar- if you're remarried unbiblically, don't turn back. Repent. Seek forgiveness. And then glorify God in your new covenant. Pursue God's intentional design for your marriage. Finally, I want to remind us that with God, there's no exceptions. No escape patches, no outs, no off-ramps for him with us. For those who have repented and believed in Jesus as their only hope of salvation, he's not going anywhere on you. You're his forever. He will never leave you forsake you. He'll never abandon you. And praise God, his love for you isn't based upon your or my performance. He'll love you unconditionally because of Christ. So look to him. Lean on him. And trust him in your marriages. Let's pray.